Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SIAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. If you'd like to know more about SIAC's latest activities, click on the links included on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts about Southeast Asia, Check out the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre's podcast series, SIAC Stories, available on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Another great sponsor of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned research centre committed to the study of and engagement with Asia and the Pacific. The Institute's research focuses on politics, security and economic development, emphasising the enhancement of links between businesses, governments and academia. For more information on Griffith Asia Institute's activities, click on their website link on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Hello and welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Faisa Zakaria, a scholar of Southeast Asian history at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. It is my pleasure to have with me today Michael Barr, Associate Professor of International Relations at Flinders University in Australia. Professor Barr is a veteran scholar of Southeast Asia. He has been elected as a Fellow of the Australian Academy of the Humanities and is Associate Editor at the journal Asian Studies Review. The work that we'll be discussing today is his most recent book, Singapore, A Modern History, published by Ivy Torres in 2019. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Let's maybe start with a bit of background on the book. So Singapore, A Modern History is in some ways a synthesis of the long-running research that Professor Barr has done on Singapore that often pushes back against state-sponsored narrative. This is most evident in his book on uh, Past Not Taken, Political Pluralism in Post-War Singapore, and more recently a co-edited volume with Lily Zubaida Rahim on the limits of authoritarian governance. So let's start with situating this book within this larger body of work. Michael, much of your work has been about Singapore after its independence and the governance of the ruling party, the People's Action Party. What motivated you to tackle a broader work on Singapore's modern history that encompasses both the 19th and 20th centuries? And why do you think such a book is needed? The truth is I've written so much about the near history of Singapore and and the contemporary history that I'm often mistaken for a political scientist. But by training and interest and inclination, I'm a historian. And when I wrote my book on ruling elites of Singapore, and I.B. Taurus was publishing it, they obviously recognised an historian in me and asked me to write a national history. I'll confess my first reaction was, do we really really need another history of Singapore? And I had to think very hard about this. And in the end, I decided, yeah, okay, there are three things that I'd quite like to 
explore and that I think needed to be explored through weaknesses in the scholarship. One of them I identified actually reading quite a strong book on Singapore by Carl Hack and Jean-Louis Margolin, Singapore from Tamasek to the 21st century. And it struck me that it was really, really good that they were trying to, well, they were bringing in the pre-colonial history and doing it very well. And yet there was still this sense that when you get to 1819, it's almost as though all of that earlier history was irrelevant. It was just the background and now the real story started. And I thought, that's not right. Part of the success story that we have now goes back into the same factors that you can identify centuries ago. And I thought, I can do something with that. And I also had in my mind some advice that Wang Gongwu gave me when I was writing my book constructing Singapore and on nation building. And he said, whatever you do, Michael, don't get locked in by the physical boundaries of where Singapore is now. You know, just because that's the boundaries that are now, that's not, doesn't mean the history is restricted to that. And I thought to myself, that is how most histories are written in Singapore these days. So if it's across the water, it doesn't count. And I thought I can do better than that. And the other thing was from my own scholarship in the same book, Constructing Singapore, I opened up with a chapter that was questioning what Singapore is. Is it a city? Is it a nation? Was it a colony? Is it just an island? I thought that's something that really needs to be interrogated. I opened up with that at one point and it never really developed it. I thought I'd like to work on that, particularly this question about city or nation or city and nation. And that's what I've done. I've ended up writing a book that follows Singapore's history thematically over many centuries. So economics over many centuries, geography over many centuries, the history of the people over many centuries. And that's something that hasn't been done before. And I think it brings a different perspective. Yeah, I think there is a tendency in Singapore historiography to separate uh, pre-colonial and the colonial period onward. And, and this is a, a great and acceptable sort of synthesis of, of both periods. And I think what you identify as kind of the starting period of 1819 and so on is part of what is known as the Singapore story. And for the benefit of our listeners, the Singapore story refers to a state-sponsored narrative of Singapore's history that has guided pedagogical teaching of history in the region and in, in, in schools in Singapore and public commemorations of the island's history in general. So this is a sort of amorphous target for you to write against. Could you tell us what you, and I think you've started to in a way, tell us what you perceive as the Singapore story and what yeah. you think is its influence on academic writing of history of Singapore specifically? Yes, Pfizer, that's a good question. Now, the Singapore story in its purest form is the Lee Kuan Yew story. It really became mainstream in the at the end of the 1990s and it was very much driven by a personal project by Lee Kuan Yew. And it's basically about Lee Kuan Yew as the great hero of the Singapore story and how he almost personally delivered Singapore to modernity and prosperity and safety. But that in its turn was built upon an earlier story by Constance Mary Turnbull, which was the history of Singapore that I'm sure all Singaporean students know and love, in inverted commas, from their studies of the history of Singapore at school and at university. And that really was a superb piece of work in terms of telling a story from archives, but it was still a PAP story from about the 1950s onwards, which is why it suited the Lee Kuan Yew story, the Singapore story later so well. But it was also 
an extension of the colonial story and the colonialists' story. Now, Mary Turnbull, to give her credit, was trying to break away from that, but because of the resources that she was using, totally English language, totally from the colonial sources, she was actually telling a colonial story. And that's why it started in 1819. So that's what I was pushing against, very much the hegemonic story that was around at the turn of the century and for the first 10 years. It has modified somewhat since then, and it has been modified while I've been writing. When I started doing this work back in 2012, the perspective that I was taking on all these things I've talked about was much more radical, much more cutting edge than it was by the time I published And that's because scholarship was changing even while I was doing my work. And that's pleasing. We'll definitely want to talk more about the changing scholarship and the ways in which uh, I think Singaporean historians have tried to push back against this narrative. But maybe just to ask about the challenges that you face, maybe as a non-Singaporean who is not particularly supportive of the ruling party's vision of history, do you find it challenging to research on Singapore, in Singapore, in terms of access to sources as well as um, data? In some ways, it's actually a relief and easier because I'm an outsider, especially when I was doing my early work on Lee Kuan Yew before I was well known. I'm not a local, I'm not Chinese, I'm not Malay. I can speak to Chinese and Malay and they each regard me as an outsider. And this brings a certain sense of relief and openness. On the other hand, it means that I am constantly aware that there's vast areas of ordinary Singapore society and mores and common knowledge that are still even now strange to me. And sometimes I find that there's something that I didn't know about that was common knowledge to everyone else. I do find sometimes that it's convenient for some people who are defenders of the regime, even even people who have a sort of a natural pride in their country to push back a little bit against the fact that I am an outsider. And that's something that I'm conscious of, particularly when I'm writing about politics. I try to stay as closely to the facts as I can. I do, of course, introduce my interpretation. I did not start out to be a critic at all. I just doggedly followed leads and followed ideas and sought out what seemed to me to be a truth. And that led me in directions that put me in fairly severe opposition to the dominant story quite often. I think that in starting out not to be a critic, where we ended up in in terms of the book seems to be pushing back against the idea of a national history that is so much centred on the ruling party. But somehow you uh, try and avoid this narrative and framing it as a nationalist history rather than a national one. Maybe just a clarification. Do you think that the Singapore story is essentially a nationalist history? Yes, it has become so. I didn't really develop this fully in the book because I was going out of my way to write something that was gentler than what I usually do. Since then, I've been much more explicit in talking about it as being a nationalist history. But yeah, it is a national history. But also, the the purest version of it is very much a a Lee Kuan Yew history. But it's it's very much a a history of the dominant group all the way through, who was the British, the PAP, the Chinese, and then Lee Kuan Yew. And that's very much the story. National histories tend to be like this, of course. There is a tendency, almost in its inherent tendency, of national histories to tell the stories of winners. 
and to tell the dominant story. This has been exaggerated in the Singapore story because it's been a deliberate construction, deliberate project, and also because the government has such a tight stranglehold on ideas and on public discourse, on education curricula, for instance, and, and the media. There's definitely, I think, um, as you point out, a sort of great man approach to, to this particular state narrative. And that started with Raffles. And maybe let's go back to sort of that point in this story and how this is presented in your book. So your book sort of emphasizes the periodization of Singapore's history that needs to be disrupted and that disruption needs to start from the moment when Raffles founded the island. So he depicted the Raffles period and the decades up to 1867 as essentially an extension of Anglo-Asian governance in the region where there is a Cotton Singapore, a British Singapore that looks towards Calcutta and London for direction and an Asian Singapore consisting of diverse peoples in the regions who were barely aware of British rule but were enriched in intra-Asian networks and formed parallel regimes um, in Singapore. So within this context, where how would you position Raffles' significance, if any, in Singapore's modern history? Raffles is the other great man in Singapore's history alongside Lee Kuan Yew. But the other thing that those two men have in common is that they're great self-promoters and they have both uh, carefully constructed their own legacies. Raffles should be given credit, if that's the right word, for obsessively seeking out some little place in Southeast Asia where he could plant a British flag and begin perpetuating his own legacy. Because up until then, he'd been, well, basically a, a, a failed administrator, a failed colonialist. He hadn't done well in Java and that he was in the back blocks out of Ben Kulin. So this was his big chance. But the actual building of Singapore, his contribution after that point was fairly minimal and often negative. Other contributors to Singapore's success who should have been given much more credit and scholarship is starting to give them more credit are William Farquhar and John Crawford who after Raffles sort of skipped off having planted the flag. They were the colonialists who actually built the place. And then, of course, there are the Malays. There's the Temengong Abdurrahman, Temengong Daeng Ibrahim, and then there's all those colonialists in the sense of being Chinese and Malays who came, and Indians who came on into the island to actually build it and passed through Singapore to Johor and established all the farms there. So that's really where the really productive activity in Singapore took place. So what Raffles did was that, yeah, he did push for somewhere in Southeast Asia for the British and found it in Singapore almost by luck. And then having offered British protection, it became a bit of a magnet. But he was a great self-promoter especially when he got back home again. I, I would agree with that in some ways. And I think that what you've highlighted in your response is also that the focus on Raffles promotes a certain kind of amnesia about Singapore's position with respect to the Johor Real Sultanate and Johor specifically, actually. Could you tell us a bit more about what your research reveals about the relationship between Johor Real and Singapore in the first half of the 19th century? Singapore was very much reliant upon the Johorian economy. The Johorian economy after, say, 1844 is regularly recognised as being an extension of Singapore, but it's not quite appreciated what that means. Singapore was facing economic crises. Its future was in doubt by the end of the 1930s. 
widespread poverty. It's, it's Gambia and pepper industry were coming to an end. The East India Company was no longer interested in it. It was a dead end in terms of careers for officials of the East India Company. And it was Johor under the leadership of Tamangongdai and Ibrahim, followed by his son, who became Sultan Abubakar, who really turned that around by turning Johor into its hinterland. And they did it from their homes and their bases actually in Singapore. And they have been completely written out of Singapore's history. And by the time we get to the end of the 19th century, Johor's economy and Johor's population, including its Chinese population, was much bigger than Singapore's ever was. It was a symbiotic relationship in that Johor couldn't survive without Singapore as its gateway. And that was where the port was. And that was its connection to the British Empire, its primary connection. Although Abu Bakr made sure he built his own connections directly with London. This is the great unsung story of Singapore's success, that it was reliant so much upon the business nuance and political nuance of what became the Johorian royal family. And it was so reliant upon the extraordinary business and farming activity that was taking place just across the water in Johor. This change, though, I think, in your book in 1867, which was sort of identified as the start of the of modern governance in Singapore, and this is the year that trade settlements in Singapore started being ruled as a crown colony. Given this uh, new understanding, in a way, of how developments in Johor also contributed to the growth of Singapore, should we question this general narrative arc that colonialism brought modernity to Singapore? Do you think this is a paradigm that should be um, dismantled? I think that paradigm still stands up. Look, there are traces of modernity in pre-colonial India, in China, no question about that. You've got to understand modernity probably includes bureaucracy, education, impersonal government. There's lots of, of elements to modernity that you can find outside of Europe, but not so much in the Malay world. The Malay world was quite pre-modern, and what the British did and I think this is where we do need to give them credit, if credit is the right word. They plugged Singapore and the Malay Peninsula, let's call it Malaya, into the British Empire, into connections with Europe and Japan and the United States. And because of Singapore's and Malaya's centrality in the seaways and in the traffic lanes, it became a node of modernity in its own right between the port between being the the destination of the first telegraph lines coming down this, to that part of the world. This brought modernity to Singapore, and I don't think that would have happened without the British or some sort of intervention like that. I guess if the British had not colonised, then steamships would have made their way to Singapore eventually anyway. The particular way that it happened, yeah, I think really is down to colonialism. And that's 1867. It was a turning point, not just because all of a sudden Singapore was being run directly from London. They'd actually become a crown colony before that, but connection with London, that was the most important thing. And it was about the same time that you had the steamships, you had uh, the Suez Canal opening, you had the telegraph coming in, and all of a sudden Singapore was really very much in touch with the rest of the world. 
And I think that's a good point to take a short break. And after this break, we will reconvene to discuss the political landscape in post-colonial Singapore. So stay with us. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. As one word. Welcome back to this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I'm with Michael Debar, um, who is the author of Singapore a Modern History, published in 2019, and we're discussing Singapore's modern history. So in this half of the episode, we will be focusing, I think, on Singapore's post-war history. And let's start with one particularly contentious episode in Singapore's post-colonial historiography, which was the elimination of the political left in the 1960s. So this happened through mass arrest in an episode of preventive detention known now as Operation Cold Store. So for the benefit of our listeners, some background, a revisionist history of Operation Cold Store was recently written by Singaporean historian Thampin Jin and was also a subject of public scrutiny between him and Singapore Minister of Law Kish Nanugam, um, who charged in a six-hour-long public interrogation that um, revisionist historians basically got their sources wrong. So clearly this is a touchy subject for the Singapore government. Michael, what is your interpretation of Operation Cold Store and what sources did you find which helped you formulate this picture? When I started studying Singapore, I was doing my PhD and I wrote what became my first book, the one on Lee Kuan Yew. The sources that are out now weren't available at that point, or if they were, they were only just becoming available and I'd basically finished my research and didn't use them. So I, at that point, was basically accepting the government's narrative about Operation Cold Store in 1963 being response to a communist threat. Now, Even at that time, I'm pleased to say that I was very sceptical about the use that was being made of this narrative and pointing out that, you know, much later, the government was still harking back to this communist threat, which by that stage was certainly gone. But since then, we've seen a plethora of books on Operation Cold Store. For instance, the one edited by Po Sukai, Tan Kok Fang and Hong Lisa called The 1963 Operation Cold Store in Singapore. And Tan Jing Kui and Zhang Okayes writing about Lin Ching Xiong, Comet in Our Sky. This has all come out because of the British releasing their archives under their, I think it must be a 30-year rule. And it has turned the narrative on its head. And the government is still in denial about this. But the truth is that the archives show just how much that Lee Kuan Yew was using the communist threat as a political tool to deal with political enemies who were not communists at all. And that the British themselves were sceptical and the Australians were sceptical and so many people didn't believe this and regarded Lee Kuan Yew as being cynical and dangerously cynical and authoritarian. And that turned out to be correct, of course. Those archives have been very important. Also, there has been memoirs written by some of the former detainees and that has thrown more light on it. Myself, I've used a lot of the old non-English 
newspaper reports, which I had access to, um, translated into English by the government. And they themselves, even though they you know they are actually, even though it's a kind of a government publication, actually show that many of the claims that have been made, so many of the myths that have been touted about the so-called communist threat were in fact constructions and it wasn't like that at all. My scholarship has not focused on that so much. So I've gone to other people's scholarship about 1963. My own scholarship has dealt much more with the 1987 detentions and there I've done some original work, quite a bit of original work and uncovered a similar sort of story, even more contrived than 1963, if I can put it that way. Certainly, I think 1987 and 1963 echo each other. But for some reason, it seems that 1963 in particular has a larger hold on the public imagination. So even recently, during Singapore's recent election, a Singaporean group on Twitter recently adopted the Barisan Socialist logo to champion Twitter content promoting democratic and transparent governance. And this is, of course, a reference to one of the casualties of um, 1963, which was Barisan Socialist or the Socialist Front with a left-leaning splinter faction of the ruling party. So why do you think that this Barisan Socialist in particular seemed to have some kind of hold on public mem- memory despite being severely repressed? And maybe more than the, the victims of 1987. 1963 is certainly more important and more iconic. It is an intrinsic part of the national and the nationalist mythology. 1987 is different because it was so ham-fisted and so lacking credibility that the government's or somewhat embarrassed about that. And also the victims were, about half of them were Catholic Church activists. There were people involved in stage and alternative theatre and groups of lawyers. So that doesn't quite have perhaps the same sort of resonant outreach into the heartland, into the estates that the 1963 and 1960s politicians did. Because a lot of, a lot of them, of course, were closely connected with what at that time was the Chinese communities of Singapore and were were known as the educated Chinese. The 1987 detainees were totally English educated. And there is a tendency, of course, to mythologize the, the Chinese educated past as well as part of the new surgeons. I won't say resurgent, but surgeons of sentimentality about Singapore's early days and the pioneer generation. Part of your response alludes to a sort of politicization of the heartlands that's not often examined in Singapore's historiography. So let's move to sort of a finding in your book that I find somewhat counterintuitive. The argument that after independence and the fact that the ruling People's Action Party, after they consolidated their power, the public sphere in Singapore became, as you put it, hyper-politicized. Conventional wisdom has it that the one-party dominance actually led to political apathy rather than hyper-politicization. So could you share maybe on your reasons why you take the, in a way, the opposite view that Singapore society after the 1960s became hyper-politicized? Chan Hung Chi and Thomas Bellows too, to some extent, were the ones who pioneered the notion of Singapore being depoliticized. And there is a sense in which this is absolutely true. Chan Hung Chi talks about the administrative state. But there's another sense in which it is hyper-politicized in that everything that happens is either pro or anti 
government. The housing is HDB. The health system is tied to the government. The education system is tied to the government. The language you speak is generated as part of politics. They're just well, not so much the language you speak, the language that you're allowed to educate your children in. All of these things are tied to politics. And part of the perversity of this is that if you are supportive of the government and or benignly neglectful of the government and, and not critical, then you're not considered to be political. If you take any sort of critical attitude, then you are being political. And the result is that there is very little space, private space in Singapore that doesn't have political connotations. The feminists have a saying that you know the personal is political. And they're talking about gender politics. But Singapore is very much like that. Politics drenches everything. It's just a question of whether one recognises it or not. If you wish to go along with the status quo, if you wish to support the government or just casually go along with the government, then you are being political. It's just that it's not recognised as such. Right. And I think this sort of um, political engagement and the, uh, it, it, it is starting to see results in some ways in, in terms of uh, the decreasing share of the ruling party's votes among the population. So in the recent elections, the ruling party won only about 60% of the vote, which may seem like a landslide in other countries, but Singapore is a tragedy for the ruling party. But it's still a strong electoral victory. So do you think Singapore's politics is headed towards more overt politicization and is 60% going to be the new normal? I don't think 60% is the bottom line of the government's vote. I think it's got further to drop than that. They may even drop below 50% in another couple of elections, two or three elections, or in that next election, who knows. But they are propping up their vote with free riders, basically, people who would like to vote for the opposition but they'll vote for the government because they're worried about their HDB flats or some such thing like that. Since 1996, Prime Minister Gerchok Tong started threatening people's HDB estates if they didn't vote for the government. And that was actually a deliberate creation of a free rider PAP vote, not letting those people who would want to, in normal course of events, take the courageous step of voting for the opposition. Instead, they'll just go along with the government. That's not working so well anymore. There are more and more triggers that are bringing people away from the government. And those triggers are because of the deterioration in the standards of governance and government and the standard of the politicians on the government side. And while this continues, I think we're going to see increased votes and gains on the opposition side. I don't believe that this is going to result in a two-party government or you know, a, a refreshing of democracy or anything like that. I don't think it'll reach that stage because the government can get less than 50% of the vote and it'll make sure the rules are such so that it still comfortably wins government. I mean, at the moment, the opposition gets 40% of the vote and just over 10% of the seats. That's one of the most disproportionate results that you see in democracies around the world. So I can easily see a situation in which the PAP gets 40% of the vote and still comes in with 60 to 70% of the seats. I, I see that as being a moderately likely scenario. 
let's put Singapore's post-95 historiography within the context of the region and think about, I think, the uh, the position of Singapore and its peculiar stability. To some extent, I think the state-sponsored Singapore story has extolled the virtues of the governance of great men and made out Singapore to be exceptional to this region. But with the weakening of the sort of the electoral support and uh, recent developments, what do you think is your take on this narrative of Singapore exceptionalism when we compare Singapore with the rest of Southeast Asia? Oh, I think the narrative of Singapore exceptionalism is in for a rough time. There's a lot more competition from within the region and just beyond the region. And there's the slipping of standards of governance and politics and administration is not going to change, was unlikely to change. I don't believe this current generation of leaders or the 4G leaders have the imagination or the capacity to deal with the very complicated questions and challenges that Singapore is facing and is going to face. The challenges facing Singapore are much more complicated than they were in Lee Kuan Yew's day in the 1960s, 1970s. There, you basically just made friends with the Americans or the British first and the Americans. You made cheap stuff, brought in capital investment and you sold it. That model is not going to work nearly so well now, but that's the model that they're still married to. So they need a new type of leader and there's no sign at all that they're going to get it. They kind of had a chance with Taman Shanmugaratnam. He's one out of the box. He's not a product of the usual machinery that produces Singapore's leaders and he's smarter than the average bear. But they obviously don't want him as prime minister because he's Indian. Now we've got this situation where the next prime minister, unless something extraordinary happens, is going to be very much substandard. So I don't think we're going to see very much talk of Singapore's exceptionalism for very long. Or maybe we'll see more talk of it, but the difference between the reality and the talk will be very apparent. It has to be said that a lot of the talk of Singapore's exceptionalism, even over the last 50 years, has been exaggerated. Yes, Singapore did very well, partly because they were able to capitalise on their fortuitous geographical situation. It took leadership to turn that into something exceptional, but they also had first movers advantage. They came out of colonialism with so much infrastructure already in place, so much infrastructure gifted to them by the British. They basically married the United States militarily, diplomatically and economically, which was a clever thing to do. And both China and India were asleep and were not, not competitors during this period. So give them credit, the people like Lee Kuan Yew, Go Kin Sui, Lin Kin San, they had the courage and the vision and the capacity to take advantage of those things. But no one else actually had much chance to take those advantages because they were distinctive to Singapore and that was just sort of the luck. It was just given to them by the gods, if you like. But I think so much of those advantages have been, have been squandered over the last couple of decades where they really needed to be learning to do something new and they haven't been. Sometimes I hope you'll be wrong, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, as a Singaporean, but I, th- I think there is uh, definitely much for us to think about in terms of critiquing the story of um, Singapore's development and the so-called trajectory from third world to first. Could you tell us where you'll be taking your research in the future? 
Oh, I've just finished um, a little series of projects on Singapore history books, two of which are on their way to publication, another one still under review. I want to do a piece with a PhD student of mine on history of Singapore defence in the second half of the 20th century. And I've got a few writing commitments, one on Lee Kuan Yew as um as a dictator. Not sure I'd actually call him a dictator, but that's the sort of brief that I've been given. Another one about nationalism. At the moment, right at this moment, I've got the beginning of a four-year project writing a chapter for the new Cambridge history of Southeast Asia, a chapter on constitutions in Southeast Asia. So really, I've got lots of bits and pieces that I'm doing. And in my garage, I have massive files that were given to me by Father James Minchin, who wrote a book on Lee Kuan Yew long before I did. And on my hard drive, I have another mass of files from the national records in the UK, which were gifted to me by PJ Tum. And I'm really trying to just find time to work my way through those and do another big project five years away, something like that. And I'll be looking out for the, the output of those various projects in the next five years. Thank you so much <laughs> for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your monograph, Singapore and Modern History. Thank you, Faisal. It has been so great to have you with us. And to the audience, thank you. You have been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, please do check in next time and check out our other episodes in the meantime. Thank you.